He goes back to the seals now. Verse 12. Then I looked, and when the Lamb opened the sixth seal, a huge earthquake took place. The sun became as black as sackcloth, made of hair, and the full moon became blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to the earth like fig trees dropping its unripe figs, and was shaken by a fierce wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the very important people, the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They said to the mountains and to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide from the face of the one who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, because the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to withstand it? In the First Testament, the sun, moon, and the stars is sometimes used as a metaphor to refer to the gods that the ancients worshipped. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 19, Moses says, Do not let the Canaanites entice you into worshipping the sun, and the moon, and the stars. In 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 5, we're told that Manasseh, one of the kings, built altars to the sun, and they worshipped and burned incense to the sun. Jeremiah 15, verse 9. Jeremiah 43, verse 13. Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 16, talks about Israel worshipping the sun and the moon uh, as pagan gods. Not necessarily as sun, moon, and stars always being used literally of the literal things in the sky that bring light to the day and the night. But the sun and the moon and the stars going dark is sometimes used metaphorically of God entering into space, time, and matter in order to judge his people, specifically for their idolatry. There might even be a sense that he's going to snuff out their gods, so to speak, by making them go dark. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 30, In that day they will roar over it like the roaring of the sea. And if one looks at the land, there will only be darkness and distress even the sun will be darkened by the clouds. So this is talking about God coming with the Assyrians in order to judge Israel for their sins. And he says, on that day, darkness will come on your land. Now this did not literally happen, but yet it was a metaphor of the darkness of the dread of death and conquest coming upon you because of your sins. Isaiah 13, 10, also talking about the Assyrians coming to judge them. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. That did not literally happen. There's not a record of that in history. Ezekiel 32 verse 7 is talking about the Babylonians coming on Judah in order to judge them. When I snuff you out, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon will not give its light. Nor did that literally happen. We don't have any record of the sun and the moon going out when the Assyrians came or when it went out again when the Babylonians came. There's no record of that. Joel chapter 3, verse 15, The sun and the moon will be dark and the stars no longer shy. This is talking about a coming judgment that will come in the future. Amos chapter 8, verse 9, In that day, declares the sovereign Yahweh, I will make the sun go down on the moon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Amos is also talking about the coming of the Assyrians and about that going dark when they come. Micah chapter 3 verse 6 also talking about the Assyrians. Therefore night will come over you without visions and darkness without divination. The sun will set for the prophets and the day will go dark for them. So there's a day that it will come when it will all go dark. But not because you're getting a vision from God meaning that you've gone to sleep and God is giving you a vision. You're closing your eyes and God's giving you a vision. 
except there's a day that's coming when the prophets themselves, their understanding, their ability to hear things and see things will go dark because God is judging them. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 6, On that day there will be neither sunlight nor cold, frosty darkness will come. Zechariah is talking about God judging Israel for their sins with an invading army. All these are being used in a metaphorical way. Now this could be some future climactic earthquake that just starts crumbling and collapsing all nations. I'm open to that. This may not be a literal earthquake shaking the earth, but rather it's a metaphor of God coming into creation. Earthquakes throughout the First Testament are often used as a harbinger of God entering into space, time, and matter into creation some kind of a way. And sometimes they can be literal and sometimes they're not. Exodus 19.18 says, Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because Yahweh descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. So this is when he's brought them out of Egypt, and they come to Mount Sinai, and he appears to them literally and physically, and it says the mountain began to shake because God was there. Isaiah 24, 18 through 20. Whoever flees at the sound of terror will fall into a pit. Whoever climbs out of the pit will be caught in a snare. The floodgates of heavens are open and the foundations of the earth shake. The earth is broken up. The earth split asunder. The earth is violently shaken. The earth reels like a drunkard. It sways like a hut in the wind. So heavy upon it is the guilt of its rebellion that it falls never arise again. Isaiah's talking about the sins of Israel and the coming of the Assyrians to punish them. And he talks about God being the, the, the power, the authority behind the Assyrians as an earthquake that shakes the earth. And when these armies would come in and destroy everything, it would be like an earthquake. When these armies come in and the horses are galloping, you can feel the earth trembling, and then they come in and they just destroy your huts and your houses and your buildings and burn them down. It would be like an earthquake. God describes this as an earthquake, even though it's not a literal divine earthquake that is being sent. Isaiah 29 verse 6 is another example. Yahweh Almighty will come with thunder and earthquake and a great noise and with windstorm and a tempest and flames of a devouring fire. He didn't literally come in fire and earthquake when he sent the Assyrians to judge Israel. Yet that's how he describes it. Micah 1.4 The mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. Micah is specifically talking about God judging Israel with the coming of the Assyrians. And Micah 1 God is angry with the nations. He's going to punish them and judge them. The mountains melt beneath him. The valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. And then it goes in and God actually begins to judge the nations. Philistia, Judah, Damascus, Israel, all these different nations around Israel and Judah. And then that's exactly what happens. They get judged by the Assyrians. And this didn't literally melt mountains. Nahum 1.5. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all that live in it. Haggai chapter 2. 
Verse 6, this is what Yahweh says Almighty, in a little while I will once more shake the sky or heavens and the earth, the sea and dry land. I will shake all the nations in a great earthquake. What is desired by all the nations will come and I will fill this house with glory, says Yahweh Almighty. That was talking about the coming of Babylonians. He is specifically talking about some great earthquake that shakes all the nations and destroys them and collapses them. Yet it never literally happened. These passages clearly are used, other than the Exodus 19.18 one, these passages are clearly referring to a metaphorical earthquake and shaking of the earth to refer to the horrific tragedy of the armies of Assyria coming to destroy Israel and Judah. There are other examples, too, that I could give you. These are just a few samples. God says, on that day, I will split the sky and I will come through and reveal myself. That didn't literally happen. The splitting of the sky or the rolling it up or the removing of the sky is also metaphorical of God entering into space, matter, and time and doesn't refer to a literal removing of the sky. In Second Samuel 22, verse 10, it says, He made the sky sink as he descended. A thick cloud was under his feet. This is talking about God coming down and judging Israel during the time of the kings. This is before the Assyrians and the Babylonians come. This is David singing a song about how God showed up and delivered him from the hand of the Philistines or one of the nations that surround him. So he's talking about the fact that some of the nations were around him during his life and they were attacking him. And God made the sky sink as he descended and a thick cloud was under his feet and he fought on David's behalf. That didn't literally happen. Yet God did it in a metaphorical way. Isaiah 34 verses 1 through 4 is talking about the coming of the Assyrians. Come near, you nations, and listen. Pay attention, you people. The earth and everything that it contains must listen, and the world and everything that lives in it. For Yahweh is angry at all the nations and furious with all their armies. He will annihilate them and slaughter them. Their slain will be left unburied. Their corpses will sink. The hills will soak up their blood, and the stars in the sky will fade away. The sky will roll up like a scroll. All the stars will wither like a leaf withers and falls from a vine, or a fig withers and falls from a tree. Not once did the sky roll up, or the stars, all the stars fall out of the sky, or wither like leaves when God sent the Assyrians. That never happened in history, yet God said that he's going to do this. Isaiah 50, verse 3. In Isaiah 37, 38, and 39, Isaiah switches from talking about the coming of the Assyrians to judge Israel in the north. And then in 37, 38, 39, the Assyrians come and do that. And God spares Judah because they repent and come to God through the king Hezekiah. But then at the end of that, Hezekiah sends Judah in the south goes back into their sins. And then Isaiah begins to talk about the coming of the Babylonians starting in chapter 40 and going into 66 in Isaiah. Talking about the coming of the Babylonians, Isaiah 50 verse 3 says, I can clothe the sky in darkness. I can cover it with sackcloth. So God says, I can make the sky go out completely if I want when I come in judgment. 
Isaiah 64, verses 1 through 4. If only you would tear apart the sky and come down, the mountains would tremble before you, as when fire ignites dry wood or fire makes water boil. Let your adversaries know who you are, and may the nations shake at your presence. When you performed awesome deeds that took us by surprise, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since the ancient times, no one has heard or perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who intervenes for those who wait for him. Here Isaiah is begging for God to come down and render the sky and tear it apart, make the mountains shake and come down and judge the nations. And he's talking about a very specific thing that he wants to see in his day. He's not talking about the kingdom of God coming to earth permanently. Ezekiel 1.1, talking about the Babylonians. In the thirteenth year, on the fifth day of the fourth month, while I was among the exiles, the Keber River, the heavens opened, and I saw a divine vision. So here he tells you the exact year and date on the calendar that God ripped the heavens open. Yet that didn't literally happen. He's not talking about some future event that will happen one day. These are just some examples of God rendering or ripping or making the sky go back in a metaphorical way. The mountains collapsing or shaking is also a metaphor of God entering into space, time, and matter and judging the nations. Judges 4, Deborah tells Barak to go and defeat the, the, the king in the north, Jabin and his general Sisera. And they defeat them. Then in Judges 5, Deborah sings a song about God historically showing up before her and defeating the people around her. And she talks about this in metaphorical ways. And so in Judges 5, 5, it says, The mountains trembled before Yahweh, God of Sinai, before Yahweh, God of Israel. So she says that when we defeated Sisera and then Jabin, the mountains trembled and collapsed. Or they trembled like they were going to collapse. And yet that didn't literally happen. God wasn't shaking the mountains as he defeated the armies. Psalm 18.7 The earth heaved and shook and the roots of the mountains trembled. They heaved because he was angry. That didn't literally happen. Yet it's being talked about as if it did happen. Not that it's going to happen one day in the future. Psalm 46 verses 1 through 3. God is our strong refuge. He is truly our helper in times of trouble. For this reason, we do not fear. When the earth shakes and the mountains tremble, and the mountains tumble into the depths of the sea, when its waves crash and foam, and the mountains shake before the surging sea. So he says, God is our protector and refuge. And when the mountains collapse into the sea and they tumble, we do not fear because God is with us. Well, that's not happening. He's talking about as if that already happened or it's going to happen again. And yet it hasn't because mountains are symbolic of kingdoms and nations. Isaiah 5.25 So Yahweh is furious with his people. He lifts his hands and strikes them. The mountains shake and corpses lie like manure in the middle of the streets. Despite all this, his anger does not subdue, and his hand is ready to strike again. Once again, he's talking about the mountains collapsing in a past tense, that they already happen as God judges the nations. Yet that did not happen. Then Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. This is God talking about the day that God is going to punish the Babylonians 
for what they did to Israel. So a lot of this, we've seen this use of the Assyrians coming to do it to Israel or the Babylonians coming to do it to Judah. Now God is talking about the day that he's going to restore his people and do this to Babylon. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and tell her that her time of warfare is over and that her punishment is completed. For Yahweh has made her pay double for her sins. A voice cries out in the wilderness, clear away for Yahweh. Build a level road through the rift valley. For our God, every valley must be elevated and every mountain and hill leveled. The rough terrain will become a level plain. The rugged landscape, a wide valley. The splendor of Yahweh will be revealed. And all the people will see it at the same time, for Yahweh has decreed it. So God is talking about the day that he will restore Israel. And he will lift every valley and crumble every mountain, level it, so that the plains will be level and flat. And Israel can easily come back to the promised land, which is recorded in Ezra and Nehemiah. Not some future for us but a future for them that's already happened for us, that they will be able to come back to the promised land easily without any obstacle. And then God uses this again in the Gospels of John the baptizer preparing the way for Jesus when he comes, which still already has been fulfilled for us. Yet not at one time did all the mountains get leveled when Israel returned back to the promised land, nor did all the mountains get leveled when Jesus came and shared the gospel and died on the cross for our sins. Isaiah 41, 14 through 16. Don't be afraid. Despise insignificant Jacob, men of Israel. I am helping you, says Yahweh, your protector, the Holy One of Israel. Look, I am making you like a sharp threshing sledge, new and double-edged. You will thresh the mountains and crush them. You will make the hills like straw. You will winnow them and wind and the wind will blow them away. The wind will scatter them. You will rejoice in Yahweh. You will boast in the Holy One of Israel. So God is talking about a day that Israel will crush the mountains and level them, meaning that Israel will not be the nation or kingdom that will be crushed, their mountain. He will be the, they will be the ones that will crush other nations and their mountains. Humans don't have the ability to crush and level the mountains completely. This is God metaphorically talking about Israel and Judah defeating the other nations. Isaiah 45 verses 1 through 2 make it so clear that God is talking about mountains as a metaphor for kingdoms. Because he talks about Cyrus the third, who's going to do this crushing. This is what Yahweh says to his chosen one, to Cyrus, whose right hand I hold in order to subdue the nations before him and disarm kings, to open doors before him, and so gates remain unclosed. I will go before you and level mountains, bronze doors. I will shatter iron bars. I will hack through. So God is predicting the day that Cyrus III, the Persian emperor, will give an edict that will allow Israel to return back to the promised land. And in order to do this, Cyrus has to become an emperor and defeat the nations around him. And God is saying, I will go before you and I will level the mountains so that you can become emperor. And then he will go on and say, and he will give an edict that will allow my people to return back to the land. This is obvious. A, another very historic time period where Cyrus did this right after God leveled the mountains. Yet there's not one historical case of God leveling mountains unless you understand mountains as a metaphor for kingdoms, and that's exactly what happened. Kingdoms were leveled. 
Jeremiah 4, 23 through 26, I looked at the land and saw that it was an empty wasteland. I looked up at the sky and its light and vanished. I looked at the mountains and saw that they were shaking. All the hills were swaying back and forth. I looked and saw that there were no more people and that all the birds of the sky had flown away. I looked and saw that the fruitful land had become a desert and all the cities had been laid in ruins. And Yahweh had brought this all about because of his dazzling, because of his blazing anger. Jeremiah is talking about the day that God has allowed the Babylonians to destroy Jerusalem. And Jeremiah is sitting in the rubble of Jerusalem. And this is what he says. And no, the mountains did not crumble and were not shaken. The sky did not go completely away. All the birds were not gone. Yet he's describing that that's what his world feels like. He feels like that happened because everything that he's known and ever loved in his home has been completely destroyed by the Babylonians. Micah 1.4, the mountains will crumble beneath him and the valleys will split apart like wax before a fire while fodder be dumped sleep slow. We kind of already read that passage. Habakkuk 3, 6 through 10. Now Habakkuk is crying out to God, there's violence everywhere and you're not doing anything about it. And God says, don't worry, I will. I'm going to send the Babylonians. And then this is what God says. He took his battle position and shook the earth. With a mere look, he frightened the nations. Then Habakkuk describes God showing up to use the Babylonians to defeat Judah. He took up his battle position and shook the earth. With a mere look, he frightened the nations. The ancient mountains disintegrated. The primeval hills were flattened. Hills, his, are the ancient roads. I saw the tents of Cushion overwhelmed by trouble. The tent curtains of the land of Midian were shaking. Was Yahweh mad at the rivers? Were you angry with the rivers? Were you enraged at the sea, such that you would climb into your horse-drawn chariots, your victorious chariots, your bow is ready for action, you commission your arrows, you cause flash floods on the earth's surface, with the mountains see you, when the mountains see you, they shake, and the torrential downpour sweeps through, the great deep shouts out, it lifts its hands high. So Habakkuk uses the Exodus language out of Egypt to describe the coming of God with Babylon to destroy Judah. This is all metaphorical. Zephaniah 2.11 Yahweh will terrify them, for he will weaken all the gods of the earth, and the distant nations will worship Yahweh in their own lands. Zechariah 14.4 On that day his feet will stand on Mount of Olives, that lies to the east of Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives will split in half from east to the west, leaving a great valley. Half the mountain will come, will move northward, and the other half southward. Zechariah is talking about the coming of the Messiah, and that the coming of the Messiah will split the Mount of Olives, but that didn't actually happen. And you might say, well, that's the second coming. Yeah, but Jesus talks about this already happening in his first coming. Once again, islands fleeing and falling and sinking are not literal. It's a metaphorical of distant kingdoms. The word coastland can also be translated as island. Isaiah 40, 15. Look, the nations are like drops in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He lifts the coastlands or islands as if they were dust, meaning he will lift them up and throw them away. But he didn't actually literally do that. Ezekiel 26, 18. Now the coastlands or islands will tremble on the day of your fall, and the coastlands by the sea will be terrified by your passing. 
So this is trembling and falling. We obviously he's referring to the people. The people of the islands are trembling, not actually the islands themselves. Now, Psalm 118 is a really good example of how God puts all this metaphorical language together to talk about an event that David saw with his eyes in his life. So David was battling and things happen and David says this. In Psalm 118, everything comes together. All this imagery is brought together to describe Yahweh as entering into space, time, and matter. He said, I love you, Yahweh, my source of strength. Yahweh is my high ridge, my stronghold, my deliverer. My God is my rocky summit where I take shelter, my shield, the horn that saves me, and my refuge. Now, obviously, God is not literally a mountain, but he is a mountain, a refuge of strength and protection to David. I called to Yahweh who is worthy of praise, and I was delivered from my enemies. So notice he is saying, I was delivered in the past tense. This happened, I saw, I experienced. The waves of death engulfed me. And the currents of chaos overwhelm me. A literal ocean did not engulf him, yet it's symbolic of chaos. The ropes of Sheol tightened around me. The snares of death trapped me. Sheol is the grave. He did not literally die and get ensnared and entangled by this. It's metaphorical of how he felt. In my distress, I called to Yahweh. I cried out to God, to my God. From his heavenly temple, he heard my voice. He listened to my cry for help. The earth heaved and shook. The roots of the mountains trembled. They heaved because he was angry. The earth didn't really shake and get heaved during David's cry for help. Smoke ascended from his nose. Fire devoured as it came from his mouth. He hurled down fiery coals. He did not literally breathe its fire out. He made the sky sink as he descended, and a thick cloud was under his feet. That did not literally happen. It's metaphorical of God showing up and saving him. He mounted a winged angel and flew. He glided on the wings of the wind. He shrouded himself in darkness in a thick rain cloud. From the brightness in front of him came hail and fiery coals. Yahweh thundered in the sky, and the Most High shouted, He shot his arrows and scattered them. Many lightning bolts and routed them. The depths of the sea were exposed. The inner regions of the world were uncovered by the battle cry. Yahweh, by the, your battle cry, Yahweh, by the powerful breath of your nose. David is describing maybe possibly God showed up in a thunderstorm and God used that thunderstorm to defeat the enemy and drown them and drive them away. Maybe lightning was hitting them. But he's talking about as if God literally did this like with his own body, that he's breathing fire out of his mouth and nostrils, that the earth is literally shaking and mountains are literally falling and the sky is literally ripping open and death and hell are actually coming up to the surface. That obviously is overdramatic language to paint the picture. All this shows that this is metaphorical of kingdoms being destroyed, God judging people, and God entering into history, but not literally ripping creation apart. And so Revelation should be interpreted this way. Why do they use this language? Well, if you are living in the ancient world, even today, and a, and a pagan foreign military army comes barreling in, and the, the, you hear the beating of the horse's hooves in a great, great distance, and it makes the earth tremble a little bit, and then you hear the rumbling like thunder in the distance, and then they show up and they, they burn and massacre the people in your village, 
and then they destroy everything, and then they kidnap some of you and carry you off into exile and, 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 and enslavement as a refugee, and some of you are left behind to wail and cry as you watch your loved ones carry off, you're going to feel like the world's collapsing around you. Emotionally speaking, your world is collapsing. Creation is imploding on itself. It feels like the sky has is, is gone black and the stars have fallen out of the sky. It is horrible and depressing. And this is language to describe the intensity of the horrific nature of this. This could be metaphorical. It could be literal. But over and over and over again throughout the Bible, it is used metaphorically. But I don't really want to stray into the literalness if it's never been used literally. I'm open to the fact that it'll be literal one day, but I'd rather not say that unless I have real biblical evidence for that. And that's where I tend to be. I'm not going to say you're wrong. I'm not going to say you're not a Christian. I'm just going to say I choose not to err in the side of using this language in a way that's never been used before. I'm willing to say it could be, but I'm not willing to do that. I'd rather just stay true to the way that it's been used rather than using it in a different way. If God chooses to change the way he uses language, he has that right, he is God. And who am I to say no? But i rather just say, it's going to happen again and again and again and again. Chapter 6, again and again. Chapter 8, again and again. Chapter 9, again and again. 10, again and again. And then we get to chapter 17, and God says, I'll destroy Babylon. And it collapses, and it gets destroyed. And Jesus shows up in chapter 19. And why is that so amazing? Because it's finally over with. That's the point. The point is God is showing you it's going to happen again and again and again. And it's going to happen so many times that you're going to puke and vomit. You're going to cry and anguish. You're going to rip your clothes and you're going to lament. And you're going to say, why God? Why God? You're going to be the martyr that died or suffering. You're going to say, when are you going to bring this to the end? And he's going to keep shoving it in your face, so to speak, not in a cruel, mean way, but to make it clear that this is what your life is. And then when you get to chapter 17, the defeat of Babylon and the fall of the beast and the second coming of Christ is like, hallelujah. But when you live in a sanitized America, the coming of a savior doesn't feel that great. But when you live in a sanitized America and you're reading about this, and you realize how bad it really is in most of world history and how bad it could get really quickly in America even, then it makes you celebrate and praise hallelujah when Jesus finally comes. We don't really truly know like these people. There's a woman on the news right now who they came, Hamas came into her house and ripped her babies out of her arm and then carried them off to God knows what. And she's crying and screaming out, I want my family. That's what you need to experience over and over again through this to realize how awesome and glorious it is when Christ finally comes back. If you've been violated physically by somebody in your past over and over and over again, you know what it's like to say, Hallelujah, Jesus, come and brought into this. That's why it says the leaves of the trees will be for the healings of the nations because we have a lot of trauma that we need to be healed from. A lot of trauma that we need to be healed from. Psychological, emotional trauma. And I think that's the point. And it could be that this is going to be some future cosmic thing one day. But I think we can all agree this is happening over and over and over again. And we need to appreciate how bad it is when we depend upon ourselves so that we will hallelujah all the more when Jesus shows up and brings an end to it. Does that kind of make sense? We're like, I can't wait to die and go to heaven, but... I can't wait till Christ comes and stomps on the skulls of the enemies and brings an end to the bloodshed and brings true peace on earth. 
and the martyrs are finally vindicated. That's the true hallelujah. That's the true hallelujah. And I think this is what God is saying. All these plagues will ultimately end with the breaking through of God into space, time, and matter to bring an end to these things. Once again, I don't, need, I don't mean to insult you or be insensitive or diminish your pain and suffer if you really truly have. We all have suffered to certain degrees. And some of you have suffered horrifically in ways that I can't imagine. I have kids in my classes who have been abused and violated. And I am not trying to be insensitive in any way when I say we don't know suffering. I don't mean that. I mean we as a nation and our comfortable homes, overall speaking, with our multiple iPhones and televisions and our entertainment, and we get angry when we get stuck in traffic or, or when the wrong person gets into power. Overall, as a nation, we have been spared from true government oppression and invasion, that kind of stuff. I will never, ever be insensitive and say your suffering does not compare to the world as an individual if you've been truly violated and wrong. Okay, my heart breaks for you. I know nothing about suffering like you do. Okay, and you have every right to say, I know what this is talking about. I can't wait for Christ to come back and bring an end to it. But at the same time, I think we can all agree as a nation as a whole, we have it pretty good. And we have been relatively protected and we have been relatively ignorant of what's really happening. And I don't mean none of you have ever read a historical document about horrible things, but it's not in our face every single day, every time we turn around somewhere where we see somebody hanging from their neck because the, the Taliban is taking your family member, hanging them and refuses to take them down. And then you turn around here and your sister's being massacred on the street corner. And then you turn around here and you have to grab your children and flee the country. When you go, the drug cartel promises you to give you free passage into America and the prices that they rape you and take your children and sell them the sex slave, sex slave trade industry and to be a military guard at the border and actually have to stand on the border and watch these women get raped, hundreds of them every single day to pay the tax to come into America and you can't do anything about it because your government says it's illegal to do something about it. We don't know what that's like really, truly on a daily, daily, daily basis. And that, that's all I mean. I'm not trying to undermine or be insensitive to anybody's suffering. I'm just saying as a nation, we're relatively protected. And this is what God is saying. This is going to happen again and again and again until my people repent and get on their knees. And even then, it won't finally end until chapter 19. Why is America immune from all of this misery? I, I have no idea. Okay. okay. I mean, that... That's a great question. That's, that's the same question that when, in, when you go off into war and all your friends die and you come back and you ask the question, why me and not them? That's a survivor's guilt. I'm not saying we should feel guilty, but that's the same idea. Like, wh why did I get spared? Well, when, 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 when your violator is, when one of somebody's violator is brought to justice, but your violator is never found and they still have power, Why? Right? I don't have an answer to that question. That's a great question. For whatever reason, God has blessed us. And we can go through all human history and the history of America, and we can point to maybe Washington and, and Abraham Lincoln. And that, but ultimately, I don't know. Ultimately, I don't know why we have been blessed. Um, and other nations have not. I have no idea. 
So, and to to hypothesize is just absolute arrogance on my part, and it will and and will some way be really grossly insensitive to somebody else somewhere. I really truly believe that because anything I say will just be insensitive and heartless to all the other nations that have not been spared from that. I mean, why was I born into a relatively healthy family um, where I had a mom that loved me and, and grandparents that cared about me and somebody else was born into an alcoholic family where their dad beats them all the time? I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know. That's a great question, but I have no answer. Listen, at the very end it says, because the great day of the wrath that came on who was able to withstand it. They did not repent, and that's the main point. No matter how bad it got, they did not repent. So God said in the ex and on the flood, everyone was thinking only evil all the time. Genesis chapter 6. And you know what? He gave them 120 years to repent. That's a long time. And not one person repented. That does two things. It shows you how evil they really were, that nobody repented in 120 years. But it also shows you how just God is in punishing them that nobody repented. And so the point is that humans have become so evil that they won't repent. Now, he's not talking about all humans. He's talking about the kings. Now, when they fled in the mountains and the caves, it could be literal, that they're literally fleeing in the caves to be protected from God's wrath, or it could be metaphorical of bunkers, right? You guys have seen the movies. Oh, the government has built a lot of underground bunkers to protect themselves. And the only people who get to go in those bunkers on that day is the government and the celebrities. And even then what God is saying is even when they are escaping, they will not be safe. What you're going to start seeing is this is different. There's going to be a day that no matter how rich and powerful you are, you might have escaped government shutdown with all your wealth and money and power. Rihanna and Jay-Z actually have a song called Umbrella where they're talking about the fact that we, we have joined the elite and we are wealthy. And when the economy collapses and all of hell rains down on all of you, we will be protected because we sold ourselves out to the elite and you didn't and you're going to die. If you want to be safe too, sell out and join us. They literally have a song like that. And God is saying, there is going to day that is going to come where you won't even, you won't even be able to escape. Enron, they escaped for a long time until one day they couldn't. Right? Saddam is saying escape for a long time until he couldn't. And what God is saying, either this is literal future or right now, eventually a day will come when you will not be able to escape the wrath of God. Eventually all kings will fall. The idea is that they're, they're, they're hiding from God and not turning to him. Hiding from God always represents a lack of repentance, like Adam and Eve when they hid. So yeah, very good question. The question you have to ask yourself too is how would the original reader read this? How would the original audience, the original reader read this? Would they be thinking as they as Jews and Christians are being killed by the Roman government, they're being martyred for their faith, they're fearing the invasion of the Parthians, they're fearing the oppression and crucifixion of the Roman government, would they view this as some future event or would they see it as now? And I, they see it as now. The main point is not necessarily around what specific things are going to happen or when they're going to happen, but rather that God will deal one day with all empires. 
I think the idea is not when or how all this is actually going to literally look. I think the main point is that God will deal with them. We, we can talk all day about whether it's future or now, but I think we will all agree that there are times where God will deal with nations and destroy them and punish them and hold them accountable now, and there will be times that it will be in the future. And ultimately one day, everybody will hold accountable. And we can all agree on that. And that's, that's what I'm trying to say. As long as we all come back to the main idea and the main point, I think we'll find we'll all agree. We might dispute whether it's future or present or both, but I think we can all agree that God is going to hold nations accountable. And one day, he will ultimately hold them all accountable. And yes, ultimately one day, it will all come to an end. And will there be one final nation or nations? Heck yeah. There has to be a final one when there's an end. But I don't think God is saying this is just for them in the future and all of you are wasting your time with Revelation. I think he's saying it's happening now too and then as well. And this is where you can find hope. You can find hope. The main point is not necessarily around which specific things are going to happen or when, but that the world empires are puny in the grand shadow of the absolute sovereignty of Yahweh who sit on the cosmic throne over all creation. All things owe the Father devotion and obedience because he created them. And they owe Jesus their devotion and obedience for he died for them to redeem them from sin, chaos, and death. Those who shake their fists at him in rebellion and seize power for themselves and exploit others will face the judgment of the lion lamb. This is why Christians of all ages should never give up their faith in the God-man no matter the temptation for a comfortable life. One day, all will answer to the lion lamb. And this is the point that John is trying to make. How do we get through suffering? When we suffer incredibly at the hands of the world, how do we get through suffering? By leaning into the lion lamb who suffered on our behalf to redeem us and will judge the world when he comes back as a king and make everyone pay for what they have done and to hold everyone accountable for who they are and what the decisions that they've made. We get through suffering knowing that this is nothing compared to what we are going to experience one day. It bears to point out this. At the end of chapter 6, we have now just completed six sealed judgments, major devastating judgments, that the popular view is that these judgments are the first half of the seven-year tribulation. But when we get to the end of chapter 6, it's worth noting this observational point. Not one time in the first six chapters have we seen any numbers of chronology or dates or length of time. When we talk about the seven-year tribulation being seven years long, and we talked about being divided into two, three-and-a-half time periods, we are six chapters in. And we are through six major plagues being dropped down on the earth in this seven-year tribulation period. And not once has God given us any length of time. He has not said the tribulation has officially begun year one, and we're counting down to year seven. Not once has seven years ever been mentioned. Not once has three and a half been mentioned, 42 months, 1,260 days, all the equivalents of this three and a half years. Nowhere are we told anywhere that where this is happening in history. Are we immediately right after Christ? Are we in the middle of it? Are we at the end of time? There is no concept of chronology. 
And then we get to chapter 7, and there's still nothing. And we get to chapter 8, and there's still nothing. In a 21-chapter book, we're eight chapters in now, and we have no chronology. We have no numbers. And so it's hard to say that we are in the seven-year tribulation of the future that begins in the future somehow, and that this is all chronologically happening when we have not been told anywhere in this book what's happening chronologically. We're given no start time period that this is year one or day one. We're given no number of how long it's going to last. We don't know where we are in context to anything and anywhere in world history and any kind of stuff. All we have is God is doing things. And this is one of the things I struggle with of giving this a seven-year time period. And yes, the numbers will come, but they won't come until chapter 12. That's more than halfway through the book before we get any sense of numbering of years or time frames or anything like that kind of stuff. And even then, those numbers are still disembodied. They have no connection to anything else that's been happening. And so it's hard to say where we truly are. If this is supposed to be crystal clear that we're in a seven-year tribulation and where we are, why isn't the book itself telling us that? Why isn't the book itself not giving us one number, one year, one day, of any chronology or numbering in any kind of way. And like I said, nowhere is seven ever connected to the tribulation anywhere in the Bible unless you take a particular interpretation of Daniel chapter 9 that briefly hints at it in a metaphorical way. But Christ never talks about the tribulation being seven years. He talks about it all the time before the before between the first and second coming. Paul never talks about the seven tribulation. No, where they talk about tribulation a lot. But numbers are never assigned to it anywhere, except for maybe possibly Daniel 9, one time, in the midst of a whole bunch of other numbers that everybody agrees is really confusing, really confusing. This is, bare, this is worth noting as an observation. 